0: That's right. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast. But this week, we're talking helicopters.
1: The Duke of Sixth Eagle Frost. on side war off. Sing it loud. And the Romeo Fox. Shall we dance? Get up! Get up! Get up! Get
2: up! Get up! Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapons systems, and, most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Everyone, This is Vincent Aiello, and you have found the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 24. We're talking helicopters, with the exclamation point. And what better way to lead into that than a mashup of two great movies, Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. We'll talk about more helicopter movies in the upcoming interview with Chadwick, all about the military application of helicopters. As always, though, before we do, just a couple quick announcements, and we'll see if we have time for a few listener questions. Anyway, I hope everybody's doing well. Things continue to do swimmingly here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast. A lot of things going on. We'll talk about some of those here briefly. But the biggest thing I want to cover right away is a mistake I made on episode 23 about the Distinguished Flying Cross. And that is, hopefully you found the corrected version of the podcast episode. But if not, you might have heard me refer to the award being earned or won. And Chuck schooled me on that after it came out and told me that this type of medal is never earned or won. It is awarded or received. Now, to be fair, there are some military decorations that you can earn or win, but not a distinguished flying cross. As he said in that episode, most people just felt like they were doing their jobs and they were then bestowed with that honor. So my mistake Tried to fix that where I could, probably still some old versions floating around, but I owe Chuck that apology there, so just want to make that clear for everybody. All right, next up, you might have seen that episode one, Sunshine and I did our inaugural movie review, where we spent about an hour talking about a handful of flying movies. I think we covered, let's see, I think it was Behind Enemy Lines, Planes, yep, the animated one. Uh, What was next? Top Gun, Hot Shots, and then Iron Eagle. And we just went through what was right, what was wrong, what we liked, what we didn't like. And it was a lot of fun. And we asked for feedback. We're still hoping for more because we want to know if you enjoyed that. Should we keep doing it the same way? Or should we find a way to incorporate some of the video from the movie as we talk? And I'm thinking about a maybe football announcer who when they pause between plays, they'll show him up in the booth and he's always standing in front of a TV screen and he can pause, go forward, go back and draw on the screen Well, I don't know if we're quite there yet, but it might be fun to get some video included in our future movie reviews. So stay tuned for that. We'll see. And the big announcement on that little extra was that I will no longer be referring to Sunshine as Episode One Sunshine. I invited him and he agreed he's going to come on to the show and become a partner and maybe a co-host, maybe do some interviews, maybe do his own episodes, not quite sure yet. Right now, we're just hoping he will get through his retirement at the end of August 2018, unscathed. And once he does, he needs to start his next job, whatever that may be. And then we're going to get him into the mix. We work well together. I could use a partner in this endeavor. So he just seemed a great fit, and it sounds like from the feedback I have received that you all agree. So we're looking forward to that. Stay tuned. We'll see how we use him. All right, we have a feature air show coming up. It's actually my hometown air show. It is at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego. It'll be September 28th through 30. That's a Friday through Sunday. And this air show every year always features two really awesome, among many, demonstrations. One is the MAGTAF. Demonstration, and that is the Marine Air Ground Task Force. I alluded to on some other episode, or maybe it was the movie review, that we'd like to do an, a whole episode on what that is. But if you show up for that show, you will see the Marines in all their glory with tanks, helicopters, fixed wing, troops, everything doing a mock attack on the field. It's really cool. They set off a bunch of pyrotechnics. It's always a great show. And then, of course, the headline is the Blue Angels that fly in the afternoon. Now, I am hoping to attend this show, and I might even have access to a chalet where I might be able to invite folks to come in and say hello. And if not, well, I'll just park under a static aircraft, and you can stop by and say hello. So if you are in San Diego or if you're looking for something to do at the last weekend of September, come on out to the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar Air Show and look me up i think we will be able to meet and i might even bring a microphone out there we'll see and it should be a really great time so come on out and i hope to see you at the show all right i think we have time for a couple questions this week just for fun let's start with a phone call
1: hey jello it's dispatcher mike from the flying life podcast man you are knocking it out of the ballpark with your podcast absolutely great content Really interesting stuff that you're producing, and I learn something more and more every single day. So, the question that I have for you is from carrier operations when you guys are at a time of war. One of the earlier episodes, I believe you said during the first, uh, first uh, Gulf conflict, uh, Operation Desert Storm, your carrier group was in the Red Sea and you were going through and doing um, air operations in, in Iraq. And between the Red Sea and Iraq, you have the, our ally of Saudi Arabia. How does fighter pilots get from the carrier to their area of operations while still protecting the sovereignty of our allies? You know, for example, the, the B-2s, which operate out of Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, they go worldwide, hook up tankers along the way, drop their munitions, and then fly home. Obviously, they have a flight plan for all of the friendly territory that they're flying over because you're still part of that ATC system. How is it that the the Navy, especially when you're having to fly over friendly countries, How do you guys deal with air traffic control and protecting and respecting the sovereignty of our allies? Uh, Like I said, great podcast. Uh, Really just interested to know how you guys did that.
0: Okay, so again, that is Mike, who is a dispatcher with a major airline. In fact, it's the same one I work for. And he and I have communicated together before. And he has his own website. You can go check it out at flyingandlife.com. And Mike, thanks for your question. So this is a pretty complicated one because it involves a lot of different pieces. So to your point, the Red Sea story. That was Mongo. I never operated out of the Red Sea during operations over Iraq, but he did. And we'll cover that answer in just a little bit. And the B-2s you spoke of, yes, they can launch from their home base in Whiteman, Missouri, but also they forward deployed to different places, including Guam. And they will be part of the air traffic control system flying internationally. And what I was told when I received a brief on their capabilities once, is they have a clearance limit. Once they get to that limit, they turn off all the things that make themselves visible. They stop talking to everybody. They basically disappear, go do what they got to do. And when they're done, they show back up at another point, turn on everything to make them be seen, and then they make their way back where they're going. So pretty interesting life, but uh, that's about all I know about it. Now, as far as the Navy goes, if we are going to fly over someone else's country, like Saudi Arabia in the scenario with the Red Sea, or more recently Pakistan uh, with operations in Afghanistan, generally there is a lot of behind-the-scenes work that happens. There has to be coordination with the two countries and their air traffic systems. And folks take care of that that are smarter than me. But what I know is that the E-2 squadron, the Hawkeye squadron on the ship, Those fellows figure all that out and then they will brief the entire air wing and they will tell us where the highways in the sky are, which are effectively like a highway on the road. You have to be on certain route, certain altitude, talking to certain people, and they expect to see you there with certain squawks, and you get to where you need to go. Generally, you cannot just run willy-nilly over the country. But there is a lot of coordination that takes place, and I imagine some agreements that are written up as well. And then it also involves, if you have a distressed aircraft, where do you go for a uh, divert, or if you have a mishap, or if you're, like I said, an extremist. So real great question. And I'm not sure if you're looking for more than that, Mike, but that's about the best I can do for you. All right, next up, let's go to a question. This is from Dave Mons from Hong Kong. Dave is one of our Patreon supporters who gets headline privileges because of the level that he supports at. And he said, I noticed that carrier-based squadrons are not necessarily based on one specific carrier. What leads them to moving around, and what is the process of moving like? Presumably squadrons get attached to their ship, and from videos and media I've seen, they personalize the ready room and squadron ops areas, etc. Do they have to sanitize them when they leave, or is this handled by others? So Dave, it's not just the squadron, it's the air wing with the squadron that moves if required, from carrier to carrier. Now I moved almost every deployment except for the two deployments between 2003, 2005. So this is pretty standard, it's pretty normal, and what happens is when you find out what ship you're going to, and the air wing commander tells every squadron which ready room they'll be in and which spaces they will have, then generally well before the squadrons get there, someone will go out, usually call the Tiger Team, and they will start taking custody of the spaces. And yes, to your point, they will customize them. And then you have your spaces, your ready room, like you said, your state rooms, your workspaces, etc. And then if you know you're leaving the carrier at some point, you don't have to necessarily paint everything back. Like if you painted your doors orange or you put a bunch of stickers and different things on. You don't necessarily have to turn them over, but there, is some things, there are some things you need to do. And you hand it back over to the ship. They retake custody. And sometimes, depending on what the ship is doing, they will repaint everything gray and blue or whatever standard colors, and they'll make it all neutral for whoever the next air wing and squadrons are coming to their ship. So, yep, yeah, it is a bit of a process, but it's not insurmountable. It's done all the time. All right, one final question here. This is from Ryan. He says, I'm curious what the fighter pilot community thinks about drones and the talk that future fighter aircraft may be unmanned. Also curious what pilots think about drone pilots. He puts that in an asterisk. Becoming eligible for medals and treated at the same level as pilots who actually risk their lives in combat. Well, Ryan, we've talked a lot about drones on this show. And I can't speak for the entire fighter pilot community, but to me, it's inevitable. The question is you know, it's like a tidal wave. The question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand there and get run over by it, or are you going to grab a surfboard and and ride the wave? So I I think it's just something we have to embrace. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that we need to keep manned aircraft just because we've done it so far. Think back through history how many things have changed and how many things are different now. Progress happens, and it's difficult to halt. As far as drone quote unquote pilots, which they are by the way, becoming eligible for medals and treated at the same level as other pilots, you know, I guess it depends on what you are awarding going back to that from before. If you are awarding doing a mission well and a mission that helps achieve a strategic objective and maybe you are saving people on the ground or protecting assets or doing something else. Well, maybe whether you're in the aircraft or not, maybe that's good enough, but maybe there are other awards or recognition that should be reserved for people whose lives are actually on the line. So yeah, the second one's probably along my line of thinking, but you know, there's never going to be a good answer to this. The people who received Purple Hearts from, you know, Vietnam, they think the people who received Purple Hearts in the war on terror, you know, in some cases, you know, some of the more minor ones, they think it's been diluted. So it's like inflation. Wards lose some of their clout. Money loses its value. I think it's a little bit the same. And I I try not to sweat it too much. All right. Well, as promised, let's get to the interview on helicopters. This is with a friend of mine who, as you'll find out, I didn't know that much about, but I learned a lot about, and we're going to talk all about the military application of rotary wing aircraft. So let's get right to it. You guys ought to do a story about me sometime. (laughs) All right, Ron Martin, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Now, I think I'm going to call this episode, Things Jello Doesn't Know. Right. <laughs> because let's start with the basics. You're still in the Navy, right? Yep, I still in even the I don't know Navy. your rank, dude. Yeah, 05. Okay, Come and there. do you have a call sign? Chadwick. Uh, Chadwick. Yeah. Okay, this is awful. I should know these things because our kids hang out, our high school kids, and we've hung out plenty, but I'm sorry. So anyway... Commander. Yeah. <laughs> Ron Martin Chadwick, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast.
3: Thank you very much. I
0: feel welcomed. Oh good. Well, we are going to talk about more things I don't know about because okay. we are going to talk about the general class of aircraft that you fly. So we'll get to that, but why don't we start with a quick background. Tell us where you're from, what got you interested in the military, where you went to college, what you're doing, all the way up to what you're doing now, and then at the end we'll talk about what's the future got.
3: Yeah, so uh, uh, I'm from Chicago originally, uh, a town on the south side uh, called Blue Island. Uh, That's where I came into the Navy. I came in as an enlisted guy and served on uh, P-3s as an air crewman and then uh, got through that, uh, great times. I loved it, uh, hunting uh, submarines uh, in the 80s in the Cold War. Uh, I then transitioned over to, uh, well, I, I, I went to the carrier uh, in the ASMOD, uh, which is basically where we brief the helicopters and then Viking air crews to do their mission. From there, I uh, put in an enlisted commissioning package and then went to Oregon State for school uh, where I picked up my commission. Uh, from there, I uh, obviously went to flight school route, just like you did, and then uh, I picked up helicopters. Uh, from there, got uh, North Island, and all the while, I've been married to my wife, Camby, this whole time. so she's Excellent. Been, yeah, so she has been riding a shotgun with me for the whole time. And then uh, from there, I came out to San Diego, and I've been out here pretty much ever since, which makes a lot of people upset. Obviously. Oh, I would imagine. But, but,, uh, but yeah, so it's been a pretty good ride. Uh, three different variations of helicopters, uh, two of the same, really, and then the last one is an unmanned. Uh, MQ-8 helicopter
0: too. Well, maybe we can get to that. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go back to the beginning. So ASMOD, what is that? So
3: the uh, ASW module. Okay. So, yeah, so it sits right off of the carrier's information center uh, where the tactical action officer sits and all those guys. So we sit right behind them, and we provide the tactical action officer inputs to their ASW mission. Okay, so So. an
0: office on the ship where they care about anti-submarine warfare. Correct. Okay. Now, the ECP, we have talked on this show before about ascension programs, if you will. Mm. So you, correct me if I'm wrong, got a couple of years of college on your own yep. and then put in for the enlisted commissioning program, ECP. Yep. And then you joined an ROTC unit yep. to get your last couple of years and then got a commission.
3: That's exactly it cool. too. So I got the associate's degree route uh, and then got to go to Oregon State to finish up the rest of my
0: uh, okay. college. Yeah. Now, would you say... I have to be careful with my words here because, and you already said it before we rolled tape, you know, there's always a great rivalry between fixed wing and and rotary wing Bubbas, but we're all, of course, on the same team. So don't misinterpret anything I'm asking. But the audience may want to know. Did being prior enlisted or ECP, did that have anything to do one way or the other with picking up helicopters, do you think, out of flight school? So
3: I kind of grew up in that age of post-Vietnam where, you know, a lot of the footage that you saw were the Army helicopter guys, you mm-hmm. know, uh, going into landing zones, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what really intrigued me. That, that was, And in fact, when I went, uh, initially came in, that's what I wanted to do was be an air crewman on helicopters. Oh. Uh, obviously, my career path took a different turn, uh, but that's okay, right? Uh, and that's where I learned a lot more about the business.
0: Uh, can, can I interrupt you? Certainly. Because I think you just exposed a great weakness in my ego. So you chose helicopters, is I think what you're about yes. to say? yes. See, I presumed you got it because... <laughs> of some other reason. So, <laughs> bad on Jello. We should probably roll back the tape here and uh, fix this. But, uh,
3: no, I, uh, I I probably uh I did um have an opportunity to go back to P3s, especially with my right, background. Sure. Um it's not what I wanted to do. Cool. Um and uh Jets didn't, you know, yeah, I I was actually in the theater uh, watching Top Gun, and you know it, it was awesome. But mm-hmm. I was more about the dude that jumped in and grabbed him, the than rescue I was, swimmer. Sure. than I was about the you know the dog fighting and whatnot. So a little bit weird on my part. But uh, the, but again, that's how I was
0: formed. All right, very good. Well, I apologize for my <laughs> incorrect thinking, my bias. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Well, good. Well, we are going to talk about helicopters on this episode. And now we didn't necessarily at the beginning of this whole odyssey, if you will, explain how airplanes fly. But I think people who tuned in to the Fighter Pilot Podcast probably have a basic idea that, you know, a fixed-wing aircraft, it's either being pushed or it's falling. Mm -hmm. Air flies over the, or flows, I should say, over the wings. You have a higher-speed air over the top. It creates low-pressure lower speed on the bottom, which is higher pressure, the high pushes on the low, which pushes on the wing, which pushes on the airplane, Mm -hmm. and the airplane flies. I mean, that was a very brief description of how an airplane flies. And then, of course, you have the empennage, or the tail, that keeps things in balance, because as any kid knows, he's put together little balsa airplanes. If you don't have things on right, it just loops over itself and doesn't fly. Right Now, a helicopter is a whole different experience. Now, quick aside for the listener's benefit here, as we were arranging for this, interview, you have been trying to get me over, and I'll take you up on this, but you've been trying to get me over to the simulator here on base Mm -hmm. and to go fly an H-60, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I partly was stiff-arming you, but also our our schedules just didn't align. But truthfully, I have no idea how to fly (laughs) a helicopter. And I wanted that to be authentic because I thought once I got in the simulator, I might have a better idea. So let's start with, if you would, the aerodynamics of a simplified, what I just did, but for helicopters. And then let's move into how you fly the thing.
3: Yeah, so if you think about the rotors, the rotor head, which is uh, you know where the blades are, if you think of those, and really they're just nothing but more than wings, right? So have two blades or four blades, but they're really wings, they're just smaller. And so as they cut through the air, the pitch, either up or down, is what defines how you get lift, right? And then as you move the rotor head itself that has the blades on it, if you pitch it forward or back or left or right, that's how you're going to get movement forward, back, and, and uh, left and right. So uh, that's how you're going to go with that. The value of torque where the rotor blades are spinning, uh, you have to offset that. And that's what's done by the tail rotor. And that helps offset and keeps you straight in balanced flight. So uh, there's a lot more mechanics. Of course, uh, you know, you've, you've got tons of other things that you, you can talk about, but uh, in essentially that's what we're talking okay.
0: about Okay. So at the beginning, I threw out the terms fixed wing and rotary wing. So mm-hmm. a fixed wing being an airplane, the wings are fixed, everyone's mm-hmm. familiar with these, and you have to rush it, the whole craft, through the air, yep. and then we get that lift we talked quickly about before. In your case, you're taking the wing and spinning it, yep. almost like an airplane sitting on its tail going straight up, and it's a propeller-driven airplane, yep. that's what you have at the top, And then you can pivot that and then you've got some vectors working for you for forward or aft or left or right. That's right. And then I think, again, anyone who's played with toys, if you have one of those little, I don't know, again, maybe a balsa thing with a propeller at the top, but no tail section, you let it go. And what does it do? It may fly, but the the body of it spins around. Right. So, again, using a simple analogy, you've got an airplane pointing straight up and then you've got an airplane kind of pointing. I'm using my hands, which doesn't help anyone but me, but um, it's pointing at a 90 degree angle. And it's holding things in balance to counteract that force that correct. would be otherwise a Newton response of the equal and opposite going yep. the opposite direction of the blades. It, it, yeah, correct.
3: Okay. And and so what I always like to look at is a, a pinwheel, right? So you got the pinwheel. Um, if you put it up on its end where the pinwheel is pointed up, and you blow on it, you're the force, right? Mm-hmm. That's moving. Uh, the pinwheel around and whatnot, and your hand is actually keeping it in balance. Uh, You know, when you add that, um, when you take that away and you need to be able to correct that for straight and level flight, that tail rotor counteracting that torque is what's going to be able to maintain that uh, straight and level flight as well.
0: Now, to be fair, there are some different variants, right? So the CH-46, CH-47 will have the twin, what would you call it, mass? Yeah, counter-rotating. Okay, uh, so uh, one goes one way, one goes rotors. the other, and they mm-hmm. hold themselves with some, I'm sure, gears and different things. Sure. And then, I don't think the United States has ever had it, but overseas you'll see sometimes, what would you call it, with the two blades, or not two blades, but the, the double rotor heads or something? Oh, so the
3: the Russians uh, um, mainly like the Hormones and Helix, uh, which is their NATO names, of of their helicopters, they have it in a single-masted, counter-rotating rotor head. So that's how they're able to affect countering the
0: torque value and still maintain lift. Okay. But for the most part, most helicopters are like what you described at the beginning. And we'll probably use the H-60 whether it's the UH or SH or MH or whatever, but I think everyone's familiar with the Seahawk or Blackhawk, depending on if it's Navy or Army, respectively. Correct. And so we'll kind of use that as our reference. Uh, But that being said, this is a unique episode because someday, maybe season two, if we decide to call it that, I would like to do a different episode, one for each aircraft. And we might come back, maybe invite you or someone else, and have one on the AH AH-1 or the UH UH-1 or the SH-60 or whatever. But for right now, we'll just talk general... Uh, helicopters. Now a quick semantic. So correct me if I'm wrong, an aircraft, let's see how I should I say this. An airplane and a helicopter are both an aircraft. Correct. Is that right? Okay. But a a helicopter is not an airplane. Correct. All right. So my F-18 is an airplane. Your H-60 is a helicopter. That's correct. Okay. Fair enough. So we talked about some of the differences. How does the way it flies manifest itself in The way we fly it. So, in other words, do you remember the show Airwolf when you were a kid? Yeah. Right. So that guy could do theoretically like Mach one or something in his helicopter. I mean, it was a fun show, but of course, like so many (laughs) movies and shows, I dispel on this podcast. Not realistic, right? But the very notion of spinning blades is going to limit the speed of a helicopter compared to an F eighteen. That's correct. So let's talk about that a little bit. So,
3: uh, you know, your forward speed combined with your rotor head speed; those two factors limit or allow you to go as fast as you can. So uh, for instance, if your uh, rotor heads outpace your forward airspeed, okay, that's okay. But if if your rotor start going way too fast, uh, you can get into what's called retreating blade stall. And then th- uh, what that is, is where um, the leading edge blade will start to stall out and where the opposite side blade will start to, it, it just basically causes bumping and and you're not able to affect speed, right? And so that right there, and then that could be catastrophic if it goes too far. Mm -hmm. So that is what limits what we can do with respect to how fast we can go. Now, British Lynx helicopters, they can go about 240, I think, uh, was the last thing I checked. Other helicopters can go a little bit faster, and then obviously others cannot. Sikorsky's doing a lot of good things with um, blade designs and things like that to make um, to aircrafts go faster, but we'll never, well, I won't say never, but um, I don't think the technology is there that we'll be able to reach some kind of mock speed like Airwolf, for sure. <laughs> right.
0: Well, so the blade itself... I mean, you can affect the pitch of the blade, but the whole blade, right? Mask. So the inner section is spinning arguably slower than the outer. Yep. And if it's a fixed form, then the outer is going faster and you could hit. Isn't there some issue with hitting mock with wingtip or uh, uh, blade uh, tips or anything like that? Uh, well, no? I, I'm not sure because okay. I
3: think the only way we'd hit mock is if we're falling to gravity.
0: No, <laughs> okay. No, I meant like the tips <laughs> themselves. But yeah. So in other words, obviously, this has been well engineered and thought out. I mean, these things aren't new. Right. Uh, helicopters have been around for a while. Okay. So relatively slower right but that can be an advantage because you can go zero miles an hour that's correct which i can't unless i'm really doing some sort of tail thing or whatever i mean Mm -hmm. i I shouldn't even go there but the the advantage of that is then you can land in smaller areas and what what are some other advantages to hovering i guess
3: so each aircraft has its own mission set right Um, jets have their mission set the design for us is that we can get into tight spaces we can um we can land there in a confined area we can offload troops we can offload logistics whatever and then take back off clear the tree line and then we're back off again um, so that vertical and horizontal piece that we have is shortened to be able to land in these confined areas that's the real key to it gotcha. and then also um, our hovering capability so you know when uh, you know fighter pilots decide that or it's get it gets decided for them that they can no longer stay with their jet we go out there and we're able to pick them up when we're able to do that because we can hover, get close, drop the swimmer, pick them up via hoist, that kind of thing. So that those are the advantages. Sure of what we can do for... Yeah, and I
0: think anyone who's listening has probably seen it, whether it was Top Gun or, you know, on TV. I think they're familiar with that Mm -hmm. ability. I guess earlier we might should have talked about the MV-22, or we can at the end, because it kind of blurs the line between these two. Oh, absolutely. It can go a bit faster. Yep. And it can go, I think, virtually zero, or can it? Yep, it
3: it can hover,
0: Okay, cool. So it is a, a unique one, and again, we'll try to get a whole show on that someday. All right, so the ability to hover... And as you said, take off and land in tight spots or on small surfaces, I'm thinking mm-hmm. like the back of certain ships, Yep, gives it a military application that a lot of fixed-wing aircraft don't have. And again, we have the Harrier, so right. some of those blur the lines. But what are some of the traditional roles of helicopters in military service? So
3: for the Navy and a lot of other countries too, the key is uh, if you remember uh, like the Army, for instance, troop loads uh, going into battle. Um, being able to pull out the the wounded, um, that kind of thing. That's, that's a traditional role. And then when you look at the Navy, a big role for the helicopters was, because of that hover capability, was using dipping sonar for anti-submarine warfare, hunting submarines, uh, that kind of thing. We go fast forward, and now we're able to land on the back of smaller ships like destroyers and cruisers, uh, the littoral combat ship, bigger deck, but still the same concept Uh, Is there so uh, the traditional role is that we can use uh, in a smaller fight, closer in to the ships, uh, we're that pouncer agent um, for the ships uh, to fight off uh, smaller boats. Um, submarines, uh, those type of threats.
0: Sure. And so then again, you can blur the lines with the SEALs being inserted somewhere, which is like an Army type or Marine Corps application. And then as you were talking about troop insertion, I was thinking about one of my all-time favorite movies, We Were Soldiers. Oh, yeah. So, So again, if anyone's seen that, you remember the first wave all comes in with helicopters and then... An hour later, they're bringing in troops, but they're taking out the wounded too. Yeah, so So. uh,
3: Colonel Moore, that was one of the first major applications of helicopter warfare in in an environment like that. And so um, uh, they used the older helicopters, but really Colonel Moore and then uh, Lieutenant General Moore uh, basically – brought that tactic forward uh using kind of wrote the book on it Mm -hmm. okay
0: so that is in a sense logistics you talked about some asw uh the marine corps uses them for attack as does the army with their apache yep right
3: Yeah. yeah they certainly do um both the well all of us train now to close air support but really it's the bread and butter for the marines uh their air wing always uh supports their ground troops um and so they their Apache or excuse me, their cobras <laughs> cobras uh provide that forward fast attack um, method um as well.
0: Yeah. And, and I've got a friend I'm trying to corral into coming on the show. We'll talk about marine aviation because it's, I think, arguably different than Navy or Air Force or Army because they are that one team, the MAGTAF, you know, the yep. Marine Air Ground Task Force. So I'm hoping to get a, a an episode on that. We can talk about the different things they fly. Mm-hmm. All right, so combat search and rescue as yeah. well? combat search and rescue.
3: The wing that I'm at right now, they fly the uh, variation of the uh, Seahawk, which is the Sierras, and as you said, they do personnel recovery. Um, combat search and rescue. Uh, basically, that's going into a high threat environment, loaded out with crew serve weapons and um, personnel that can support grabbing uh, the wounded individual and then bringing them back home. And then, as you said, we also do special operation forces uh, support, either insertion or extraction, things like you saw in Zero Dark 30 or right. any of those type of movies. Yeah.
0: Speaking of that, are you allowed? See, I got to be careful on this show because I can't disclose things that are classified, if I know they are. But I don't know the answer to this, but I hear... What was the deal with the Osama bin Laden raid? There was some kind of crazy tale they have pictures of left over from that raid of those helicopters. you know anything about that? Are you allowed to talk about that?
3: Uh, so all I know is what I saw in the movie, right? So specially outfitted helicopters. Um, I saw some of the pictures, too, that were released to the media. Uh, they got into a position where they um, had a, a power, uh, settling with power. So basically, they got into a hover, but yet they didn't have enough energy on that um, aircraft on the rotor head, uh, to be able to stay in the hover, maybe too hot, too heavy, and they just started settling in, and then as they were coming down um, and trying to pull power with it, they just kept, as I understand it, I'm not the, I wasn't there, so I'm just (laughs) reading, you know, news clippings, but basically they hit that wall and busted the tail, that kind of thing.
0: Something I read stated that they had built a mock compound to rehearse, Mm -hmm. and that the wall they had built was chain link, and when they got to the compound, it was... Masonry, and so they hadn't prepared for the different aerodynamic blowback or something. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. But yeah, and I read the same. Did uh, you? Okay. Something
3: similar to okay. that too. Yeah. So we're just
0: speculating now. Yeah. But let me backtrack because I do this all the time with my interviews. I'm no trained host here. Uh, let's talk about flying a helicopter. Oh yeah. How on earth? I mean, so I think anyone's listened to me on the show, I, they've heard me say, you know, pull back, trees get smaller push forward they get bigger roll left roll right and then Mm -hmm. yaw with your feet Uh, but there's more to it with a helicopter so give us the quick you've never flown an airplane before and now we're going to fly a helicopter you've got both arms and feet you're like a drummer yeah everything's doing something different so walk us through that yeah so
3: i tell you if you're if if you could um pat your stomach rub your head with your other hand and then tap out a tune with your two feet uh that's kind of what uh what that is like flying a helicopter. You're always doing something because any input that you put in has to be countered or has to be added with another movement. Right? So if I want to go forward, I have to adjust my tail, Uh, To maintain balanced flight, I have to add a little collective, uh, which that's uh, how the uh, helicopter uh, goes up in altitude and down in altitude. And then so I've got to, uh, in different regimes of flight, I have to maintain all of that. And and then obviously with your eyeballs, watching your instruments, making sure you're straight and level on the horizon, uh, things like that. You know, technology's caught up, so we do have hold functions on our uh, flight computer system. Autopilot almost? Almost almost like it, right? So uh, it it doesn't necessarily go to, right? It doesn't, you just set it and it just goes where it wants, but it will hold altitude for you, Hmm. uh, things like that. And that's perfect. So, like, when you're on a dark night, you're on goggles, you're not getting a lot of information from that, um, but yet you still have to be in a 20-foot hover uh, for the pickup or something like that. It does provide that extra safety balance.
0: Okay. But so I really actually want to talk through this, Ron, because uh, I, I don't know it. So let's start with the rudders. That's pretty easy. I mean, mm-hmm. the rudders are for yaw. And right. so to make an analogy for people who aren't familiar, if you drive a car, you're essentially yawing the car when you put in a steering input left or right, right. because that's virtually all you have besides mm-hmm. acceleration, deceleration. So that's the same. right? Okay. Then you have a stick and ostensibly push it left. You will roll the airplane left about its longitudinal axis Mm -hmm. and same to the right. And then to your point, if you push forward, you're pitching down, Mm -hmm. but you've got to combine that with something else. And if you pull back, you, so that's all right-handed things. What I don't understand is the left hand. So is there, there's an arm of some sort and are you twisting and raising or just, so in some
3: helicopters, there? like the Bell Jet Ranger that we trained on, um, the throttle is like a motorcycle, and you you open so like it up, so like a grip, okay. Right? And mm-hmm. so um, typically, what you want to do is you want to maintain an open throttle or the engines at its maximum proficiency or its full up, right? Okay. So like you know a jet where you or uh, an aircraft where you want to slow down or whatnot, you pull back mm-hmm. uh, on the throttles. Uh, You push it forward, you know, you increase speed, decrease speed that way. Uh, For us, we want all of that available to us, and then we use inputs to the the cyclic, which is the stick, or the collective, which is uh, on my left hand where it causes uh, aircraft lift. We make our inputs via those methods in order to go slow or faster uh that way
0: so what is your left hand actually controlling like the pitch of the blades Uh, so because is it a constant speed yes
3: so right so you've got uh it pitches the blades that's where you're going to get the lift if you want to go with the cyclic like you said you want to go forward well if you kept going forward without doing anything to the collective you're just going to go into the dirt like a lawn dart right Right. so the key there is that every input that i put in i want to go forward the tip path plane or the um, the the masthead pitches forward, and so it looks like it's almost like the helicopter, and then the 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 rotor blades are pinching on each other. If you look at a picture, and you're like, "Wow, why, why is it doing that?" So if I'm in steady, just regular, just sitting on the ground, they're almost like uh, up and down. If I want to go forward as I'm flying, the masthead uh, would basically pitch forward, and then that would cause me
0: to start going forward. So if you're seeing the airplane. From the side. No, I said that wrong. If you're seeing the aircraft, the helicopter yeah. from the side. Yep. The blades at the front of the helicopter are lower, Correct. and the blades at the back are higher. And so if you know anything about vector analysis, that took your previously maybe straight vertical vector yep. and moves it forward, and so Correct. now you have a component going forward. Yes. Okay. And so to your point earlier, as soon as you do that, now you're in this transitionary flight where you're starting to go with some forward airspeed, which I'm guessing affects other things. Yep. But now you've got a balance with the tail, which is your feet. Yep. And you've got the stick and the collective, not the stick, but what do you guys call it again? So we
3: got the cyclic,
0: which cyclic, is your stick, okay. yep. if you will. And, the and then the collective. All right. right. So again, patting your tummy, rubbing your head or whatever yep. you say. I can't even say yep. it, let alone exactly. do it. All right. So yeah, I need to, we'll, we'll need to get in the simulator <laughs> and then I can report back to people and tell them if I'm able to do it. I'm not sure I want to actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got some fear on that. Yeah.
3: They, you know, the, the hardest part, a lot of people um have is the hovering piece. Right. Right. So there's a lot of adjustments going in there and sure. then hovering in one position. Right. Right. So you pick the hilo up and then it's sitting in a ten foot, five foot squat depending on how you're doing it. And it, if you don't make any other inputs it's going to start turning on you uh getting it's blown going to, by the wind yeah it well that maybe. and basically you're not countering the torque of the head oh sure and so the tail rotor's not doing its job uh, effectively and then you'll get like maybe a settling where you, you you'll start going back down again so there's a lot of mechanics that get mm. there so the hovering piece uh, a lot of students uh, actually have a hard time with uh, and then they get that grass it's usually pretty quick sure. uh, and then uh, once we do that then and we move on to forward flight. And forward flight, because we all start in fixed wing mm-hmm. uh, together, uh, it's an easier concept for people to grasp. It's just the mechanics of it at that point, getting over the, I'm not using one stick to vector, I'm right. using three different
0: things. So when you're doing 100 miles an hour or knots, whatever, mm-hmm. in your seahawk mm-hmm. is it fly like an airplane almost at that point yes okay yeah
3: pretty it, it's everything responds sure. basically the same anytime i make a turn or uh, climb or dive i still got to make those different vector um, mm-hmm. inputs but other than that yeah you're flying to, to coordinate and balance yep <laughs>
0: Now, most military helicopters are fairly benign in so much as pulling Gs or doing any kind of aerobatics. But there's some out there, I'm just kind of thinking of a Red Bull helicopter I've seen at an air show or something, that's doing loops and rolls and all that. I mean, how is that possible? So, you know, those are special. special, You
3: know, they've got some specially built equipment in there, you know, how the rotor head's made. Mm. And then also, obviously, the pilot Highly trained because sure. he's got. If you're going to make those kind of inputs, like for instance, a British Lynx helicopter can do that as well. Hmm. Um, they actually did that, I think, in a H fifty three test. Uh, they did it once, never did it again. Um, <laughs> Does so, everybody walk it, away? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, they did. Okay. It, it's part of the test, I guess. Right, I, 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 I don't know. It, these are the stories that you know uh, the horsemen at our simulator buildings always tell us. But it, it's. It, it's the helicopter itself it's the person uh, making these inputs it's it's all of that combined together yeah
0: okay excellent uh, what about like in my airplane now? Granted, an F-18, if I lose both engines, I'm pretty much out of luck. But yeah. some airplanes, like an F-16, I could glide at home. If you're flying along, how many engines, by the way, in an H-16? So two engines, one okay. auxiliary power unit. Okay. Yeah. So if you're flying along going somewhere, let's say you're doing 100, what's a typical cruise speed? About 100. Okay. So if you're doing 100 knots and for whatever reason, bad fuel, whatever, mm-hmm. boom, both engines gone, can you glide somewhere like an airplane? Or? Yeah.
3: So uh, that's you know the bad day for the helo guy. We, d- we don't jump out, right? We don't have parachutes typically. So ours is that big fan that's sitting on top of the helicopter. That's what's our last saving grace to get us back on the ground. Um, and it's called an auto rotation, right? Okay. So uh, what we're doing there, there's a, what's called a freewheeling unit uh, inside. So what that does is he decouples the engine from the drivetrain and allows basically the rotor head to act as like, like a pinwheel, right? Okay. So uh, what you want to do is uh, you want to maintain your uh, revelations per minute, your RPMs, uh, and then also your forward airspeed. So you're using the wind coming at you uh, as well as you going down to be able to give that last big pull at the end to flare those rotor blades enough to where you're basically beating the air back down, air current back down to be able to create a softer landing.
0: Okay, so let's, Try to make an analogy here, and you can correct me on altitudes or whatever. So mm-hmm. if you're flying along at 100 knots and maybe 1,000 feet yep. and you lose both engines, right. what you're saying is you're going to kind of free spin the blades and let your forward speed and gravity. Now you're going to turn your what? Well, you've already got kinetic energy, but you're mm-hmm. going to take your potential energy of altitude yep. and convert that. So you're going to get a nice rotation speed on those blades yep. with them sort of, what do you call that in a regular turboprop, um, feathered. Yeah, feathered or right? flare. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so then at the end, you have a method to say, okay, now I want to take these blades and put them into the air. I'm going to lose speed probably quickly on the blades, but I'll have a little bit of bite and that will arrest the rate of descent?
3: That's that's correct, okay.
0: right? So uh, what you want
3: to do is, uh, you know, as you enter your auto autorotation uh, full collective down, uh, put your um, basically in a descent so your uh, blade pitch is at one angle, mm-hmm. uh, and then you just ride that as much as possible uh, to a given point on the ground. And then just as you're close to that given point at a literally uh, 20 feet off the ground, uh, you're going to pull as much of that collective as possible Possible to flare those blades out as quickly as possible to basically rush that air downward. Uh, to be able to kind of cushion out that landing. So that's really the... So basis. living here
0: on Coronado, where there's... what This is like the master helo base or something, right, yeah, for the West right. Coast. I see all the time helicopters come in in pretty high altitude. All of yep. a sudden, they look like they're just falling out of the sky. Yeah, exactly. But I don't see them go all the way to the ground. I assume right. when they're practicing this, there's some safety altitude. Yeah. So
3: first of all, when we practice, they're called power-on autos, right? So okay. at any time, we goon up an entry or something like that. We've got everything on, sure. right? The engines are up, everything like that. We just pull in a collective, put in forward cyclic, and we, you know...
0: So you have a way to simulate an engine failure. Get out. exactly. Right. And then I'm guessing you stop at some safety altitude. That's right. Okay. So
3: um, here at North Island, uh, what you find is we typically do our functional check flights. Well, not typically, but we're allowed to do functional check flights here, and that's what you're seeing. And at North Island, there is a given altitude at which you have to recover your auto rotation because you have to be able to uh, then uh, leave the airfield boundary to get back up on altitude okay. to come back around. Um, at OLF Imperial beach, where we do a lot of our training, um, that altitude is based on what our standard operating procedures are for training. Okay. So, which is a little bit lower than what we're typically.
0: Sure. So if this happens for real and you're going to the ground, you have ground effect peripherally. You have, I mean, so if you're trying to stop at 200 feet, yeah. It's arbitrary except for the guy next to you who's going to slap you if the altimeter goes too low, right? But in right. real life. So I don't know what I'm getting at with this other than how often do auto rotations happen and do they generally go well? So, is it pretty rare or is it pretty uh, common?
3: They've We've had a few, right? Um, mm-hmm. The one that really sticks out in my mind, um, we had a crew coming back from a mission. This was a few years back. And basically, I think they had some kind of power loss um, at night over water. Ooh. So this is like, you know, varsity movement, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so uh, the pilot, uh, she basically was able to enter into an auto rotation with enough airspeed because they were operating at a lower than, I, I can't remember the altitude that they were uh, operating at, but, or coming home at. They were coming back to the carrier from Fallon, I think it was. Okay. And so, or El central one of the two. And so they came out, and then she uh, recognized, I mean, it's got to be split second uh, when this goes off, and she recognized it, um, entered the auto rotation. Managed to land it into the water and everybody walked away. Just an amazing feat. Wow. Yeah.
0: But when it hits the water, because you guys do some pretty crazy water survival training with all that weight up at the top, as soon as some water comes aboard, doesn't this thing basically flip upside down and start sinking?
3: Yeah. So the part of that is, is you know, when the rotor blades are still spinning, right? They're gonna the aircraft will start tipping, and the rotor blades will catch into that water, and that's what helps drag you um, Uh, back around, right? And so that's why you know when we do the dunker training we simulate that position, right? right. So upside down, and uh, obviously the worst is upside down at night um, and then
0: you know, what with a
3: reference point, you know, wow. trying to get out of the helicopter.
0: Do they give her an award of some sort, I hope? I, I, I'm not sure. Okay. I mean,
3: it, it, you know, reading just the what she had done and right. how she affected it and everybody walked away. Uh, it was just an amazing feat to me. Well, and
0: it wasn't just her, right? So there should have been someone on her left or right now. Yep, actually, the and that's a question. For the helicopter, mm-hmm. the, the main person sits on the right, I believe. Is that correct? Or? So
3: they can sit in either position, okay. right? The aircraft commander uh, mm-hmm. can sit in either position. Uh, it just depends on how you want to set it up. Okay. In uh, some helicopter, the aircraft commander will sit on the right and okay. then the uh, airborne tactical officer, or the co-pilot will sit on the left, okay. uh, and that's basically sensors, right? So they have the ability to um, use the sensors, sure. and, um, but nowadays, the um, the way the Romeos and Sierras are set up, both positions can actually affect that.
0: So sure. Now, why do you suppose it is, Ron, that most helicopters in military history, at least in the U.S., have two pilots? You, I mean, is there, do you think, um, I'm a co- not a cause, but a reason, or... I don't know. Can you think of any single, other than maybe little civilian ones zipping around? But. Yeah,
3: I think, you know, the key for us is combat, right? So, you know, the deal there is that you, you get a combat casualty to one of the pilots, one of them can still bring the, the aircraft
0: home. Sure, but using that uh, logic, we have single-seat fighters. Yeah, we do.
3: Um, that's why you have helicopters to go grab it. <laughs> uh Touche. <laughs> so... Um, and then the other part is uh, redundancy, right? So when, you know, when you're doing, and you know this, I mean, when you're doing split-second emergency procedures, a lot of ours is rote memorization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's one pilot is probably doing something on one side of the aircraft, the other one's doing the other. For instance, in an auto rotation, right, one pilot's got to fly the aircraft while the other one's navigating and communicating uh, outside. Mm-hmm. And so running through the emergency procedures, so it allows for, basically a backup. Um, okay.
0: So as you were telling the story, you said she a couple of times, and yep. I assume that she was probably the hack or the right. uh, aircraft, aircraft commander. commander. Okay. And then so the co-pilot. She gets right. The credit. And then there, there's someone obviously helping out. Yep. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get back on track here because this is a military themed show. So I think we talked about some of the roles. Uh, what are some notable, well, actually, before we get to that, where did helicopters first begin being used in the military? I mean, were they around in World War
3: II? So, yeah. So, um, helicopters really started getting, uh... I don't know, they were starting to become a little bit more popular in uh, the 30s and 40s. In okay. fact, the Germans uh, built a helicopter, and I don't know if it saw combat or not, uh, but basically it broke a lot of speed records, altitude records, and things like that. You, you start moving forward in time, and and uh, we we see helicopters being more and more used in the 50s during Korea. Mm-hmm. MASH is a great example. Sure, the television show sure. where they brought in the wounded. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's where the Army figured, okay, this is a great uh, medical evacuation evacuation tool. And then also, uh, some of the helicopters that they built, it's a great troop transport uh, as As well.
0: As we talked about earlier. exactly. Sure.
3: Okay. And so as you move through, you know, history, you know, Vietnam, we see more and more uh, application of helicopters, Uh, In the 80s, right, not a lot going on. We had the Cold War. So what we see application of helicopters, specifically with the Navy, is in in its use of troop transports, anti submarine warfare, uh, basically gathering intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, ISR, um, and things like that to be used in that kind of function.
0: Sure. Now, speaking cool stuff, I mean, there are, again, as we've talked about, the Apaches, the Cobras. What am I forgetting? I mean, there's some out there that are kicking some butt right. with kinetic force, i.e. weapons and whatnot. Yep. Yeah. Um, now, to be fair, though, there's not a lot of uh, – at least I haven't heard of a lot of air-to-air between helicopters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe there's been – I know there's been some air-to-air between airplanes and helicopters, and I think it's a little lopsided, but that's yep. not maybe a fair fight. Right. Um, but I think there's at least one – Recorded kill of a helicopter on an airplane.
3: Yeah, I I tried to find that um, when I saw you. You know, you were talking about that. uh, I I front
0: loaded the question to him, people. Yeah, so (laughs) I
3: I couldn't find it, quite frankly. Um, But what I will tell you is that yes, some of the helicopters do are equipped with uh, sidewinder capability. Yeah, I believe the Cobra, Um, right? Yeah, the Mm -hmm. Cobra and the Apache have that capability. What I will say is that I. As we move into these uh, the days of uh, today with uh, unmanned air systems and the bigger ones that are out there like Reaper size or uh, Predator size, countering the UAS threat, uh, we will, we'll probably see where helicopters can engage those. They're, they're slower. Uh, we, yes, we have used jets to engage them. Uh, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but really, it's it, it it's, it's something that the jet needs to go off and do fighter stuff, sure. and we can handle the slower moving, uh, non-lethal, you know, sure. UASs.
0: When I did some research, the only thing I found was I believe it was in Iraqi. Helicopter that had shot down a, an Iranian MiG-21, or, or maybe it was vice versa, but yeah. I'd have to look at it again, and maybe I can put some notes after this. I probably should have checked it out, but I think there's at least one that yeah. I've been able to find, but, you know, it's the internet, so. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Know I, you
3: know, I did see where, um, I was it an Iranian um, MiG shot down one of our drones because it shot at them first, but, I mean, yeah. that's, that's about, you know, they've got a couple of weird ones out there, but mm. I hadn't seen that one.
0: Another military application of helicopters, you touched on it earlier, Is landing on small ships. Mm -hmm. Now, small ships are more prone to reacting to the sea. So I've talked before on this podcast about landing on a carrier when that thing's really pitching and Mm it's no fun Mm -hmm. in a fixed wing. How is it landing on a destroyer, let's say, when it's, it doesn't, or does it, does it go up and down or does it mostly go left and right? I mean, what's that like and what do you guys use to get aboard?
3: Yeah. So uh, on the smaller ships, it does right, so you 've got the the pitch of the waves it's it 's just challenging to try to um, to to try to overcome that as it 's coming down there's great footage um, of uh, helicopters uh, landing on smaller ships during you know big storms uh east coast you know they they deal with a lot of bad storms in the Atlantic uh, same without out here but uh but I have not had that huge challenge. What I will say is that um so we uh, the, So the Romeo helicopter version of it has what's called a recovery assist um, and traverse system. So what that is... Romeo is,
0: being the MH-60R. M- the MH-60R. Okay. Yep. Uh,
3: so what that is, is it does two things. One, it's a, we call it the trap, or it's like a big giant bear trap. We have a, a probe at the bottom of the helicopter. Once we get in, it'll snap close, and it holds us to the deck until the chalk and chain main can come out there and put huh. the chains on the deck. Cool. But, you know, in that first part of the flight uh, where it helps us basically when the ship's pitching and rolling pretty hard, um, we're able to drop down a uh, a line out of that probe, hook it up to what's called a RAS cable. That cable goes up into the helicopter, and then it will draw us down uh, with the pilot uh, working the collective like a winch well. to
0: get you unstuck
3: basically just to winch us down to the ship and then and, and put us on there okay. now a lot of pilots don't necessarily like that because you're now attached to the ship and yeah. the ship is the one dragging you down so uh, a lot of uh, you know a lot of experienced pilots will you know forego that sure. and just try to make the landing themselves
0: do you have I'm guessing some sort of light system or signals to kind of gauge where you are yeah, or so do you the, have like a landing signal officer equivalent or that, anything
3: that's it right so a landing uh, LSO or landing signal officer Officer sits in uh, like a a little bubble, if you Mm -hmm. will, uh, and they have control of the wrath system when they're drawing you in and and, and letting you loose, kind of thing. They have control of the trap system, so when uh, you're in the trap itself, and then they close it, close the bear claws on you, uh, it holds the helicopter, and and so that's what that person does. That person also coordinates. They're the they're your your eyeballs at the back of the deck for the safety observer they coordinate with the ship right the officer of the deck making sure that they're on um, they've got the right winds in place for us Uh, just like you right you got to have winds um, that are favorable to your landing Uh, and then from there uh, they all of that's coordinated through the LSO and then obviously the last couple of instructions back down to the
0: pilot sure and so they have like standardized comms and things too they can tell you everything is
3: yeah everything is Right, so you don't want to be miscued on uh, uh, communications for sure. Sure. So, you know, when you call up and request for a green deck. Uh, which is uh, basically the captain allowing you to land right. uh, all the way down. Uh, they signal up to you with a, uh, basically it looks like a stoplight, right, a red, uh, yellow, and green light. Um, and then uh, they flip the the switch. I'm, be, I'm being very simplistic sure, that's fine. Uh, for the for the audience, but, but basically they flip it and let you know uh, via the light show that you're ready to land in uh, the comms too. So if we ever had to work in a position where either the radios are out on either side of the ship, which has happened, or we're in what's called an uh, emissions-controlled environment where we don't want to talk on the radio to mm-hmm. give our position away, uh, they can use the light show to help us, uh, to tell us when to land.
0: Sure. So in the Marine Corps F-18 world, let's say, every pilot at some point will carrier qualify. Mm-hmm. Now, they may later go to a two-seat squadron that deploys to, say, Japan or somewhere and they right. don't go to the boat in a while, but eventually they'll go back, or at least they did it once. In the Navy, I, what, do we have anything besides H-60s in the Navy anymore? I don't think we do, right? No. Other than UAS, UASs we'll talk about in a minute. But yeah, no. So does everybody does is a Seahawk pilot, a Seahawk pilot, does everybody go land on a small boy or does it depend on what squadron you're in or is that part of the initial training? How does that work?
3: Yeah, so in the fleet uh, replacement squadrons, that's where we gain our initial training to Mm -hmm. the back of the ship, uh, learning it, and every pilot has to go through that. Um, And then depending on the type of ship, Uh, cruisers and destroyers. Uh, For instance, the um, 60 Sierra version lands on all of them. It doesn't matter. And quite frankly, the 60 Romeo does as well, but it is mainly ones that go back to the destroyer or the cruiser because of that RAS system, right? Um, That's where they operate off of. Okay, They they can fly to anything, but basically that's what they operate off of. So all of us have to get that deck landing qualification uh, and maintain that currency in order to go back to the boat.
0: When you are, let's say, at your point in your career, you know, when I was your age, the answer to this question I'm about to ask you would be night carrier landings. Mm -hmm. What is the hardest thing a Seahawk pilot does or any helicopter pilot? I mean, maybe it's different for the Army and Marine Corps, but what's the hardest thing you guys do?
3: So, you know, I I would say, you know, just to your point, you know, those night deck landings um, on a bad night is what scares you know a lot of us right so you know that's a lot of input that's a lot of work I know that uh, you know guys get vertigo uh, mm-hmm. And in that environment, because not only as you're coming in, so uh, you get into a position as you're coming to the back of the ship where um, you could lose your references and go into what's called a black hole, and so you're not putting in the correct response to the helicopter, and you're actually sinking below where you think that you are, and and people have actually you know landed in behind the ship because they weren't mm-hmm. recovering out of that black hole, and that's that's really the scariest part for a lot of guys, and you'll sure. see you know when you're um, you're junior pilots are making those approaches uh, at night you'll always see you know and this should be in any case your aircraft commander shadowing those controls because that's a split second decision you got to get that guy up there get him back on profile to land on the back of the ship so
0: like anything with some experience you build that database of your, you know, I haven't seen this, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so there's no substitute for experience. Exactly. And again, maybe a reason why there's two of them, because that can be pretty harrowing, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, what about an actual carrier landing? Is that pretty vanilla? I mean, those things are Yeah, those things are (laughs) nothing but,
3: you know, it's funny because uh, when I was in uh, my first squadron, um, we were in uh, what's called a light airborne multipurpose system helicopters, which were the B variant of the 60s. And so those traditionally went on to destroyers while the Navy was phasing this capability onto the carriers. And so that's what brought us there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so one of the coolest things, right? Top Gun, the whole nine yards, watching the carrier environment, watching the jets go. It's just an amazing experience. But what I kind of got a, a, you know, a big grin about is my first time going in on a uh, carrier uh, approach. And they're like, okay, uh, call the ball. And I was like, oh, yes, you know, (laughs) Seahawk ball. You know, it's like, Don't say rider or whatever that that (laughs) other guy said, but uh, but yeah. So that was like, oh my god, this you know being on the carrier, uh, uh, landing, taking off. I mean, it's just a pretty amazing feeling. And you know, I always to my younger, uh, my junior officers or junior pilots, I always equate the carrier and the, 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 the smaller ships, the destroyers and kind of like one's big city life, lots of people going on, you know, 24 hours, it's like New York. Uh, and then the destroyers, cruisers, that small country you live in, right? So you're there by yourself everybody as an air detachment. Everybody knows each <laughs> other, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah.
0: And they both have pros and cons sure, for sure. Of course. Yeah. No, I remember the first time I noticed a helicopter coming aboard at the end of the recovery. Cause yep. you guys are out there watching over us. Thank yeah. you. And he said something like Seahawk ball. And I thought to myself, hey, you didn't say your fuel state. And yeah. they're like, well, duh, it doesn't matter. He's touch <laughs> at, down. That, at that point, right? <laughs> He's going to touch down really slowly. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. All right. So you, you, we have touched on Top Gun a few times. Is So the Air Force, I had Boat on here. He's an Air Force guy on episode, I think it was 18, talking air to air missiles and so he had to drop iron eagle because that's like their version is there a top gun for helicopters is there a favorite movie for you guys you
3: know it's funny uh you know when firebirds came out the army version of their whatever that was Mm -hmm. you know everybody was like oh that's great i don't think any of the navy guys got into that one uh as much um you know i it's uh i I don't know I, (laughs) i the one movie that i kind of like uh, and I'm kind of a weird guy like that. But it, I don't know if you ever seen the old movie Bridges of Toko Ri.
0: I've heard of it, but I can't so say I've seen it, which with, is an awful yeah, with, confession. It's with uh,
3: William Holden. Mm. Uh, the part that I like, though, is uh, there's helicopters, right? And sure. so Mickey Rooney, uh, is a, a, he's a chief who's a, one of the helicopter pilots. And he always flies with his top hat, drives CAG crazy <laughs> uh, the whole nine yards. But that that that's the kind of movie that
0: I like Awesome. I think We Were Soldiers glorifies it a little bit as well. And then what was that, forgive me, you might... Not want this one like hot shots for us, but um, the Coast Guard movie with Kevin Costner, oh, the Guardian, yeah, yeah was mean, that kind of good for you guys, or is that too coasty, too, yeah, I think it was
3: swimmer? coasty centric, but okay. I think the swimmers got into okay. it, uh, as well. But you know, the other movie that I think uh, garnished a lot of uh, you know, cool factor for Hilo guys was The Hunt for Red October, oh, yeah, true. And so, the helicopter that that's uh, the variant I flew, um, w- that dropped the torpedo, and you know, Admiral Greer, I was never here, uh, that kind of thing, <laughs> um, that, that was that was like, oh, yeah a kind of cool factor
0: moment. Or Black Hawk Down. That was very uh, centric, I would say, yep. on helicopters. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're about running out of time here, Chadwick. Well, let, let's talk quickly, though, about UASs, mm. or I guess is that what you guys call them? I mean, what's, yeah. what's the future hold for unmanned helicopters in the Navy? Or yeah. Where are we at right now, for that matter? So uh,
3: right now, the the wing that I work at right now, we field what's called the MQ-8 Fire Scout. It is uh, they've got two models. Uh, the B version is a smaller 333 Schweitzer model, uh, small, uh, very effective in what, it's, um, what it does. It's basically an intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance platform. Uh, right. It provides all of that information back to the ship for them to make the decisions, right? Uh, And then the version that uh, we're working towards is the MQ-8 Charlie, which is the Bell Jet Ranger, if you think News Chopper 5, that type of helicopter, providing the same um, type of functionality to the ship. And that's
0: kind of where Rotary's going uh, in the future. Do you see any kinetic ability with uh the... Unmanned helicopters? So that's programmed, right?
3: Okay. Uh, obviously, anything that uh, we get up in the air, we want to put weapons on for it sure. to be lethal. And yep. so that is that, that does have a
0: program. I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, for my listeners' sake, we had an episode recently with Kevin Miller, who is a former F-18 guy and, mm-hmm. and now an author. Mm-hmm. And he wrote two books, and we had a big to-do on the show about him. But the second one, called Declared Hostile, talked about the MQ-8 in this scenario. Of course, it's fiction, but mm-hmm. you know, going out and, and taking out some drug runners and, and doing some good work. So yeah. pretty cool. All right. And so when that deploy has it deployed yet? Yeah, actually. Okay. it uh, does it fall it, under on the ship?
3: So it is coupled with the littoral combat ship. Okay. And so uh, it's flown with basically the Romeos, uh, 60 Romeo detachment, okay. as well as uh, uh, most recently the uh, MH-60 Sierra detachments. And that's who own, that's who owns them right now. Cool.
0: All right, Chadwick. Well, gosh, I mean... I always say this at the end of discussions. I mean, we could keep going and going. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, like I said earlier, we will at some point talk about your baby, the Seahawk. Yeah. Um, but in general, from a military perspective on helicopters, anything else we should cover for today's episode?
3: Um, I think just the versatility, right? Um, you see them today. um Out with CAL FIRE, putting out fires. Um, The Sierra helicopter does that, too. We're trained to doing Bambi bucket water drops. We have guys out there that are standing uh, ready to answer the call. Yeah, that's Uh, like a
0: homeland defense function in a sense, right? Don't we go out and help
3: yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. FEMA, you know, okay. um, that kind of thing. So we'll if Cal Fire were to call us tomorrow, we could put up a couple crews with capability to go out and help fight the fires um, that are, that are around hmm. too. Um, Cal, right now, Cal Fire and um, the state is doing great work uh, with what they have, and right. so you know.
0: so who pays for that? Do you know? I mean, that's like separate Title Ten stuff yes. and other stuff.
3: I yeah. Mean- so uh, you know, that's all. Because, you know, working civilian and Department of Defense, it gets kind of weird right. uh, in all of that. posse cumitatis and things of that nature. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be a whole other podcast, right. I'm sure. Um, but basically, uh, the deal is there's a break between civilian authority and de- Department of Defense or military authority. And really, that uh, is what would drive that. And so if somebody asked us to go out and fly that, Whoever is the requesting agency would then have to work through their side of the government sure. to provide. I mean, they're not money. stroking
0: a check to HSM, whatever. That yeah, That might be exactly. a bad example. But, um, but it, somewhere someone accounts for it and moves some fake money from one account to another exactly, or something. Exactly, right. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that'll do it then, dude. Uh, we have a couple questions here on the Fighter Pod Podcast we always end with. The first is, what's the future hold for you? So you're still playing the game? I mean, are you yeah. eligible to retire but just still having fun, or what's yeah, the deal? Yeah, so um, 32 years. Holy cow. Yeah, with my You don't look like you could have been in
3: that long. Yeah. Uh, I grow older every day. Um, don't we all? Yeah. But, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'd like to go and try to put a uh, legislative affairs fellowship in and go work in, you know, for a congressman or senator oh, cool. and then try to Try to be a little bit better. All
0: so right. Well, that, you're not um, bad now. No.
3: Well, help. I, I should say try to help the process a little bit Oh, more. yeah.
0: The bad process, yeah, not exactly. the bad Chadwick. Okay, I'm exactly. with you on that. Bad Chadwick. Let's yeah. not go there because yeah, exactly. uh, we try to keep this one non-political. the yeah. show that is. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So, again, I will confess my own ignorance, but I didn't even know we called you Chadwick. I just call you Ron. Yep. The last question of the show always is how did someone come up with Chadwick?
3: All right, so uh, so when I first got to my first squadron, uh, basically they did what's at an all officers meeting every friday and they would bring up this day in naval history um as a talking point just kind of break <laughs> the ice that kind of thing uh-huh. and so they ran into rear admiral french chadwick uh 1910 time frame well they liked that guy's name so much that they wound up putting him in everything so no matter what it was during that uh, aom he's either mushing dogs with admiral bird uh, driving a tin can down Tokyo Express, flying uh, in space. It didn't matter what this guy <laughs> Were did. Were they photoshopping him into different things? Well, uh, they're basically talking about it, oh, right? Just, so, they, you okay, know, yeah. And there was Frenchie Chadwick, right? Uh-huh. And so I roll in, uh, you know, a little bit older, saltier uh, than the typical junior guy that rolls in. Because of your enlisted time. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. A few more ribbons on my chest, and they take one look at me and go, oh my God, you're Frenchie Chadwick. And of course, I'm like, <laughs> Uh, What does that mean? No, no, I'm Ron Martin. Uh, Good to meet you. And so at the reckoning that we had, that name came up, and it stuck, and I've been Chadwick ever since. Well...
0: On this show, we've had plenty of people who talked about they showed up right after Super Troopers came out, and so yep. they were far better yep. or something else. And then you have some people like, well, I started as this, but I ended as this because I did that. Yep. So at least you don't have that caveat or yeah. asterisk on your call sign story. Yeah. All right. Well, Chadwick, thank you for your 32 years yeah. of service to this country. Thank wow, you very dude. Much. Gosh. Yeah. I think if I knew Still that strong. there's another thing I didn't know. I feel bad now. I should be like blowing more smoke when I meet you at the different functions we always end up at for our kids. But no, that's 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 amazing. That's so on behalf of the listener, thanks for your service and your continued service. And thanks for coming today and schooling me on rotary wing aircraft because I really didn't know a lot of that.
3: Yeah. Anytime, I I really want to bring you out, let you get to play on the simulator, give you a little sense of appreciation. So maybe
0: what we should do is we should go do that before this airs, and then I can talk about it in the uh, little notes afterwards. <laughs> there you or go, something. exactly. Excellent. All right, dude. Well, unless you got any parting shots, we can wrap this up. No, nope,
3: uh, thanks for having me out.
0: You're welcome. All right, let's get out of here. Bye.
1: I love the smell of napalm in the morning.
0: All right. Once again, big thanks to Ron Martin, call sign Chadwick. <laughs> 32 years of service. Is that dude a hero or what? What a stud. I think we explained all the different terms. I think he did sneak in, though, OLF, as in outline field, Imperial Beach. And that's just one of many fields the Navy uses. It's not really a base. Well, I mean, it kind of is, but usually nothing's stationed there. It's just a field that they use for landing practice. And in this case, Imperial Beach is right on the border with Mexico, uh, right next to the ocean. Uh, Another thing is, I did not make it to the simulator between that recording, which was just last week, and now publishing this episode, so my regrets, but we'll circle back around to that, either add it later, we'll talk about it, or maybe it will be an exclusive on Patreon. Now, speaking of Patreon, we've got four new patrons we'd like to announce. Two division leads, Joe Tanglo and Joseph Penty. And then two strike leads, that's the $25 level, John Holland and Andrew Bradley. So our big thanks to them for coming on Patreon, supporting the show, and of course they get access to exclusive content. So if you want to figure out what they're doing, check it out yourself. Go over to patreon.com, search Fighter Pilot Podcast, and you can see all kinds of cool stuff that's on there, depending on what level you decide to support at. Well, as always, I like to remind the listener that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Well, I hate to say it, but that will do it for this episode. We've got to wrap this up. We're running over time here, but I know you enjoy the content, so we'll start working on the next one, I think don't hold me to this, but we may have a series coming up on flight training. So for those of you looking to become one of us, well, you're going to really like this. And for the rest of you who maybe it's too late, well, you probably still learned something. So stick around. Not sure yet, but we'll see how that goes for the September 1st episode. As always, though, it's been a real pleasure sharing this odyssey with you. Uh, The movie review I talked about at the beginning with Sunshine, if you missed that, it's still on Facebook. You can also find it on our YouTube channel, and we'll hear more in a moment about the different places you can find the Fighter Pilot Podcast. But we thank you for coming along, and we'll see you next time. See ya.
2: Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877 4101 Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive fighter pilot podcast content and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. some going down here. We in the open. Dude, that
0: was awesome. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I, sorry, you, you're, you're asking for simplicity, and then you started going arrow on me. I was like, oh, shit, did I, did I miss the mark? I was
0: like, <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like oh, "Yeah, it's all that's good. All
3: right. I figured you'd drive the bus, so. but it was good.
0: Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow-ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.